the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Five minutes after six o'clock, Jimmy Sangenberger in for Stefan Tubbs today. Here on News Talk 710-KNUS. Good to be with you, as always. Of course, I host the Jimmy Sangenberger Show Saturday mornings here on 710-KNUS. This past Saturday, I ended up not having the opportunity. I was ill to do this conversation, which I wanted to do then, but I'm glad to do now. A week ago today, a week ago today, the United States Supreme Court heard oral arguments in two cases dealing with student loan forgiveness on the part of the Biden administration. This scheme that Biden and co. have put together to cancel student debt for most borrowers in this country. Up to $20,000 in debt relief available. Of course, this has been put on hold because the Supreme Court took the case. And we're waiting to see what will happen with the court. Probably this summer, by June, amidst when the court gives out all of its decisions for the current term. We'll see what will happen. I mean, to me, it seems pretty obvious the president doesn't have unilateral authority to cancel student debt like this. And yet the Biden administration is claiming that authority, particularly relying on the 2003 HEROES Act and the COVID-19 pandemic national emergency. Now, of course, the Biden administration has also unilaterally extended what Congress approved back in 2020, which was this pause on interest for the student loan program. Basically, a repayment pause or forbearance has been in place for now three years where student loan borrowers haven't had to pay back a penny and haven't been accruing interest. This is something that is set to expire in June after the Supreme Court makes its ruling regarding the student loan forgiveness piece. What are we to make of this and what was discussed in the oral arguments last week. Let's break it down with somebody I always appreciate bringing on for a discussion on constitutional issues, and that would be professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, Ilya Soman, who joins me now. He's also author of several books, including Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration, and Political Freedom. Good evening, Professor. Thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's always good to get your perspective. And this one, we've talked a little bit about this before on the air, and I really wanted to break it down with you. I listened to the most of the oral arguments last Tuesday, found them quite interesting in these cases of Biden v. Nebraska and Department of Education v. Brown. But I just want to ask you a big picture question, Professor, because... It's difficult for uh, folks, I I know who are listening right now, to understand this. Why in the world we're talking about something that seems like it's cut and dry in the Constitution? Is the president allowed to unilaterally eliminate student loans for millions of borrowers or not? Seems like it's not something in the Constitution, but it's not that simple, is it? So it might be in the Constitution if the president could prove that Congress authorized him to do it. If they didn't authorize him, and I think at least for the vast majority of the debt in this case, I think they did not authorize it, then it would be illegal for him to do this, and that's uh, what the case is about. Uh, you know, the, the administration says they do have proper authorization, whereas the people suing them say they don't. So really, this comes down more to an issue of the statutes and laws as opposed to a simple constitutional question. By and large, yes, but obviously how you view the statute and laws depend to some extent on how much you think Congress can delegate its power to spend uh, to the president. Uh, And if it turns out that he doesn't have this authorization, then he would, in effect, be raiding the Treasury in a way that the Constitution forbids. So let, let's talk about one thing before we get to the specifics of, you know, the HEROES Act and the the arguments on the legality of this action by Biden itself. There's something that has to be dealt with first, which is, and this dominated much of the discussion, something called standing to sue. Is there standing for the state of Nebraska, for example, to bring forward this this case or the state of Missouri to bring forward, you know, there are questions about whether or not you can actually bring the case, setting aside the merits of the case. Yes, the the Supreme Court has long said, I think probably wrongly, but it is a longstanding precedent that says before you can even bring a case in a federal court, you have to show that you have standing and that requires you to prove three things, the most significant of which for the present case is you have to prove that you've suffered an injury and you have to prove that that injury was caused by whatever legal or illegal action you're complaining about. If you don't have an injury or you don't have an injury of the right kind or it wasn't caused uh, by the potentially legal action that you're suing against, then the courts will throw your case out even without considering the merits of it. And I think in in this litigation, the Biden administration has long uh, expected and most observers expected that their best chance to win would not be by showing that what they were doing was legal, but by showing that none of the people trying to sue them uh, have standing to do it. So a very large part of the oral arguments in both of these cases were devoted to this procedural issue rather than to the issue of whether uh, the loan forgiveness is legal or not. In, in essence, it's gatekeeping whether or not a the Supreme Court, in this case Supreme Court because it rose to that level, should consider the merits of the case. 
Um, and, and so when you look at standing, how do you assess that in these cases, Professor Elias Soman? Is there, under current Supreme Court precedent, standing in these cases? So I think there is in at least some of them. Uh, there are uh, six different states that are suing and then two private individuals in the other case. Some of them, the standing arguments are iffy, but at least in the case of the state of Missouri, I think they have a very strong argument in that the state of Missouri has a state government agency called the Higher Education Loan Authority of Missouri, MOHILA for short. Uh, and MOHILA is actually a big loan servicer. They service uh, federal student loans, and they get paid based on how much money in federal student loans they handle and how many of these loans. And they show that if a lot of these loans are forgiven, or even some of them are, MOHILA will lose money. Uh, and even the Biden administration admits this is actually the kind of injury that would normally give you standing. They just say, well, the state of Missouri doesn't really have the right to raise a case on behalf of Mohila, because Mohila is at least a partially independent agency. Uh, they have a separate board, uh, and they have uh, um, they have their own funding and governance structure. Uh, and I think these kind of arguments they overlook the fact that Mohila uh, is in fact owned by the state of Missouri, and therefore a loss to Mohila is necessarily a loss to Missouri. Again, we're talking with law professor Ilya Soman of the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Now, based on the oral arguments last week, and I know for some listening it might be a little convoluted, but unfortunately this is what dominated so much of the oral arguments, the presentations before the Supreme Court last Tuesday, so you need to talk about it. How do you weigh what the Supreme Court might do here? Because it's always interesting when you hear whether it is Justice Amy Coney Bay who seemed to have arguments that she was considering from both sides or what have you. Uh, it's interesting to hear what they are presenting and what they think or what they were saying rather in this in the oral arguments last week. Do you have any feelings on how the court may go on whether or not they're standing that can get them to d- address the merits of the case, which would be step two? Yeah, so I think. There are nine there are nine justices on the court. The three liberal justices do seem to be pretty sympathetic to the Biden administration's position both on standing and on the merits. Uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, one of the conservatives whom you also mentioned, it's possible she also buys the administration's argument that Missouri doesn't have standing, though it's not entirely clear if she does or not. However, it is likely, though not certain, that the other five conservative justices do believe that at least one plaintiff has standing, at least Missouri. It may be that they also think that some of the other states also have standing. So if I had to guess, it will probably be something like five to four or possibly six to three for the proposition that one plaintiff has standing. Uh, on the other hand, if they reach the merit, then if the merits, then there will be a 6-3 uh, majority in favor of the plaintiffs on that. I think the conservative justices were pretty clear uh, in their view that uh, this is beyond the power sure. that was delegated by Congress, the administration. And I want to get to the merits here just a moment, but I want to very briefly, and I know you could get technical here, but you have long been a critic of the way the Supreme Court currently approaches this idea of standing to sue that we were just talking about. Why do you think the court has gotten it wrong? 
so there's a long history behind this, but basically they've gotten it wrong because there's nothing in the text or the original meaning of the Constitution which says you have to have these restrictive standing requirements. The Constitution uh, just merely says that you have to have a case or a controversy. There's nothing in the word controversy that requires this particular type of material or direct injury. And even more stupidly, there's nothing in the Constitution which says uh, that it can't be an injury that's shared by a large number of people. So uh, the real injury in this loan forgiveness is really to the taxpayers, that uh, $400 billion billion would be lost from the Treasury, which then the taxpayers are saddled with the bill for, essentially, uh, in a time of fiscal crisis, but the court has essentially arbitrarily said there's no taxpayer standing to challenge illegal <laughs> expenditures, and there's really no good reason for that other than just the, the weight of precedent. It's absurd to me when you're talking about what some analysts have uh, said would be upwards of a trillion dollars, not just $400 billion, but the accepted number is at least $400 billion, and yet... Taxpayers can't sue on that notion of the president doing this through the executive branch um, agency known as the Department of Education. It's just absolutely stunning to me. So, Professor Ilya Soman, let's get to the merits of the case. Uh, How do you believe the justices sort of weighed that last week in their oral arguments? I think it is very likely if the court does reach the merits, it will be a 6-3 against the administration. Uh, essentially, when you look at that statute, uh, there are three reasons why the administration's position uh, is weak. One is the statute doesn't actually, in so many words, say uh, in the event of a national emergency, you can forgive loans entirely. What it says is you can waive or modify regulations relating to those loans. And that's the 2003 HEROES Act. Yes, that's right. That is the law that the Biden administration cites to justify their position. Uh, And waiver is probably not broad enough to allow mass forgiveness. Second, even if it is, it still doesn't say you can waive or modify loans for anybody uh, during the time of the national emergency. It says only for those who, uh, because of a national emergency, have been made worse off with respect to their ability to repay the loans. And of the 40 million people uh, who are eligible for loan forgiveness under the Biden plan. There are many millions where there's just zero evidence that they actually uh, suffered in terms of their ability to repay the loans. Uh, indeed, uh, in the uh, oral arguments, uh, the Chief Justice John Roberts even cited data indicating over half of the people questioned in surveys about this. They said they would have no problems repaying their loans, and those who said they might have problems, it's by no means clear how many of them was really because of the pandemic as opposed to because of something else. So there's just a massive overreach uh, with respect to that. Uh, Professor, uh, so, and finally, yeah, if the statute is unclear, imagine you think you know it's, it's unclear, it's ambiguous. The Supreme Court has said in several cases uh, that uh, any time – uh, a federal executive branch agency says that some vast power over a major issue has been delegated to it. At the very least, they have to show that Congress clearly made that kind of delegation. Mm-hmm. If it's ambiguous, then the courts uh, have to assume that there was no such delegation. This is the so-called major questions doctrine. And here it's pretty obvious 
you know, the delegation that's being claimed is major, $400 billion or perhaps even more. Uh, and in addition, at the very least, I think the statute is unclear. I actually think the best interpretation of it is that it just doesn't allow uh, loan forgiveness on this kind of massive scale. Uh, but even uh, what's U.S. it's not clear whether it allows it or not, then the major question doctrine mm-hmm. applies. Uh, and if it does apply, then uh, the administration loses. I think one of the arguments that was made by the solicitor general representing the federal government is that this isn't really an expenditure of, say, $400 billion. It's it's effectively just canceling $400 billion from the balance sheet or something like that, where she was basically saying this is a, a program that wasn't incurring a real expenditure, and it wasn't, for example, assuming the power of the purse of Congress because you weren't having the same kind of expenditure. Um, I, I don't... It, it, I think that was one of the points that was raised, and I don't understand that logic. To me, it's cut and dry. You're talking at least $400 billion being uh, being taken from the federal treasury for the purposes of forgiving student loans of millions of Americans and a power not authorized to the president by Congress, meaning Congress didn't give the president the power of the purse on this matter that assumes $400 billion at least in federal debt owed or debt owed to the federal treasury, basically. So I think the argument that she tried to make was that the major questions doctrine only applies to government regulations of individual liberty or individual rights and doesn't uh, apply to uh, government uh, financial benefits. But there's nothing in the doctrine which says that, and there's no reason why you would make that kind of distinction, given that uh, the expenditure of vast sums of money, that is still you know, a major power of government has a major effect on people. And ironically, if you look back at English and American history, one thing thing which civil war was fought over was to prevent the king from being able to expend money on his own without the consent of parliament. And obviously, one reason why the founding fathers, the framers, allocated the power to spend to Congress rather than to the president was to prevent any one person from having control over the public purse. Right. And uh, I, I think the other distinction you suggested also is probably somewhat specious distinction between uh, spending money uh, versus canceling debt, because obviously if you cancel the debt, that is money that would otherwise be in the federal treasury. So it's the same kind of action uh, mm-hmm. as uh, spending money. Now, can you just very briefly just clearly state in as uh, you know simple terms as you can, Professor Soman, what the major questions doctrine is about? Sure. Uh, I'll I'll sort of reiterate what I said earlier, which is that uh, the court has said in a bunch of cases that if the executive claims Congress has delegated to it the power to uh, resolve some big political or economic question, at the very least, the executive must show that Congress did so clearly. If the statute is ambiguous, if it's not clear whether Congress made this massive delegation, then courts have to rule against uh, the executive on that. Uh, so you think that the Supreme Court will rule six to three on this. What do you imagine that, providing that they do get to the merits and through the standing question, what do you imagine the dissent, which would be from Sotomayor, 
Kagan and uh, Justice Brown Jackson, um, what, what they may say in their dissent, what would they argue? So they, I think they prefigured some of those uh, arguments in the oral argument. One is they're going to say that this is, in fact, clear, and that also in, the, in, a, in a situation of a national emergency, the executive needs flexibility to address things, uh, and therefore it would be bad for the court to hamstring it. They may also say that the education department has greater expertise on educational loan matters than either uh, the court or perhaps even Congress, and therefore, you know, uh, there should be some deference given to their views. Uh, and so I think it would be, be some combination of those sorts of arguments. You know, I, I just have to say, before we let you go, Professor Elias Soman, and so appreciate your time this evening, I just have to say that, like, I, I still owe student loans. I haven't had to make a payment in three years. Most borrowers haven't made payments in three years, and they haven't accrued any interest over that time. To me, that's been a significant amount of relief in and of itself due to the pandemic. And now, post-pandemic, when even economic analyses show that most most graduates with degrees are at least somewhat better off today than they were before the COVID-19 pandemic. I don't see how you can make the argument that this idea of student loan forgiveness at this point it has it is is actually in fitting with the crisis that we were dealing with that precipitated the uh, moratorium on student loan payments. Yeah, I think what's really going on is that Biden is trying to use sort of the excuse of the national emergency to push through a policy that Congress would not authorize. There's a pattern of recent presidents doing that. It's similar to what Trump tried to do with the border wall diversion uh, back in uh, 2019 and 20, where right. you know, he declared a national emergency and then said, I can do this expenditure that in reality Congress had not authorized. This is the same thing, sort of thing, except on an even bigger scale, because yeah. the amount of money involved is, is larger than uh, there's bait kind of attack. Yeah, I've, I've made that comparison myself as well. Uh, professor Ilya Soman, again, law professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, author of several books, including Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration and Political Freedom. Really appreciate you joining us and offering your insights tonight. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Once again, Professor Soman of the George Mason University joining us here on the program. Jimmy Sangenberger filling in for Stefan Tubbs. We've got about half an hour left. Open lines 303-696-1971 is our telephone number. Keep it right here. Denver's local talk leader, News Talk, 710 KNUS. Twenty-seven minutes before seven o'clock, Jimmy Sangenberger rocking in this house. In for Stefan Tubbs. Gotta love that. Stevie Ray Vaughan and on the keys there, the great Reese Winans. Still alive and well in the case of Reese. He always plays with Joe Bonamassa. Good to be with you here on 710-KNUS. I was very struck last week by the admission of what so many of us knew from way back in the spring of 2020. I remember talking about this with my a good friend, Basil Baz, 
who was in the CIA for a very long time, and he was the first one actually brought to my attention that, look, this virus, this COVID-19 virus, probably came from a lab in Wuhan, China, specifically at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And last week, we had affirmation from the FBI director, Christopher Wray. Of course, this is what he told in full Fox News on this point. The FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. Let me step back for a second. You know, the FBI has folks, agents, professionals, analysts, virologists, microbiologists, et cetera, who focus specifically on the dangers of biological threats, which include things like novel viruses like COVID, uh, and the concerns that in the wrong hands, some bad guys, a hostile nation state, a terrorist, a criminal, the threats that those could pose. So here you're talking about a potential leak from a Chinese government-controlled lab that killed millions of Americans, and that's precisely what that capability uh, was designed for. I should add that, uh, that our work related to this continues, and there are not a whole lot of details I can share that aren't, aren't classified. I will just make the observation that the Chinese government, seems to me, has been doing its best to try to thwart and obfuscate uh, the work here. Note that last part, which is why I wanted to play the whole clip. Christopher Ray, the FBI director, is saying that the Chinese are trying to interfere with any investigation into the origins of COVID. And we've seen this. There are the Chinese Communist Party. And I shouldn't just say the Chinese. I should say the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government. And the Chinese Communist Party is going after Elon Musk because he had the audacity on Twitter to share or at least to perpetuate the questions that are being raised and have been now for three years about the origins of COVID from a leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology that we were told could not have been the case. But behind the scenes, we learn, especially from the Fox News reporting last week, we learned full well that the likes of Anthony Fauci, Dr. Fauci, were aware that it was likely from a lab, but specifically he paid grants from the National Institutes of Health. He paid grants to researchers for changing their minds or their positions and advocating for the position of, oh, no, it was natural caused. It was from a wet market in China, not a lab. Because, of course, it implicates gain-of-function research, which Fauci himself has quietly been supportive of. But we know now that scientists who originally were saying, you know what, there might be something here, Dr. Fauci, to this lab leak hypothesis, they were paid money, in effect, 
got research grants and so forth to change their mind. And in fact, we now know that Dr. Fauci initiated a study specifically to counter the lab leak theory that he then would cite, without acknowledging his involvement in getting it going, that he would cite to justify his position that, no, this was not, couldn't have been created in a lab. He called it a shiny object, dismissing the idea and denying that so-called gain-of-function research could have sparked the pandemic. But now we have the FBI amplifying what the Energy Department's division specifically focused on issues of viruses and viral research. What those two entities, among others, have concluded in terms of the probability of being created in a lab. And it's no wonder, of course, that China then has been hiding the science on COVID. In fact, even CNN acknowledged last week that it was striking how the Chinese Communist Party has been hiding the science on COVID. While the WHO initially said after their field visit in 2021 that it's highly unlikely it started in a lab, the WHO also asked to go back. And if China really wants to pursue that science-based approach, you would think they'd say, all right, come on back in. Any data you need, we'll provide. They've done the opposite. They've said no to the data and no to another visit. Right. And uh, I mean, the data is really critical. They have not provided the data that scientists would need to really understand exactly and zero in on the origin. That's over on CNN. Well, then yesterday, On CBS News, you had former FDA Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Scott Gottlieb saying, look, uh, people are getting serious about the lab leak, but you know what? We should just assume that it was a leak. We're three years into this. There is some recommendations that are on the president's desk. I think we need to start getting serious and looking at what steps need to be put into place. You know, we're still stuck on the debate about whether it was or wasn't a lab leak. I don't think we're going to prove that. I think we should work on the assumption that there's a probability that it was a lab leak and start putting in place the kinds of protections that we need. The congressman talked about gain-of-function research. He made the point that there isn't a real commercial prerogative for doing that kind of research. I agree with him. We ought to look at whether we outlaw that kind of research. And certainly, if it's going to take place, conduct it in BSL-4 labs, high-security labs under very strict conditions where we know what's going on, and don't outsource it to labs in China. Sometimes the highest-risk experiments get outsourced to the worst labs around the world because they're the ones willing to do those experiments. And so if we're going to do high-risk research because we think it's important from a national security standpoint, and that's the only context in which this would make sense, there really isn't a commercial context in which this would make sense, uh, we need to get better control over it. And to Matt's point, Matt Pottinger's point, we need to get the intelligence agencies engaged in this as a national security, as a part of their national security mission. Engage the intelligence communities in this as part of their national security mission. Look at banning or at least regulating gain-of-function research. I think banning seems like the right thing to do based on COVID-19, and he says, well, we don't know, but let's operate under the assumption that it was a lab link. Lab leak. Now, we know that it was a lab leak at this point, like almost with absolute certainty. 
that that's my conclusion. That's, I think, the only reasonable conclusion that we can reach at this point. And really, quite frankly, the most likely or the best conclusion that we've been able to reach for years now. But, hey, at least we have mainstream media types finally saying this. Although, is it too little too late? Why are they doing this now? Listener text coming in. All these admissions are being done well ahead of presidential debates to take fire away from candidates critical of the administration. Yeah, you know, I I think that there's a, a lot of truth to that in a variety of different areas. But isn't it something that they're finally admitting it now? Maybe there are reasons why they are. Maybe it's to try and steal thunder away from candidates moving in the next couple of years? I don't know. It's a curious question. What are your thoughts? 303-696-1971 is our telephone number. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger filling in for Stefan Tubbs. When we come back, I know he talked about it again earlier in his show. Another day of discussions from Tucker Carlson on January 6th. I'm going to offer my thoughts on why I don't think that this changes much, the revelations, supposedly, at least, that he put forward in video on his program. We'll pick up with that as we wrap up and wind down the show. Jimmy Sangenberger in for Stefan Tubbs here on Denver's Local Talk, Leader News Talk, 710 KNUS. Wrap it up and winding down. Just a few minutes left. Jimmy Sangenberger in for Stefan Tubbs. One more Leonard Skinner tune as we pay homage to the original band members, the last of whom Gary Rossington passed away at the age of 71 over the weekend. Very sad. One of the great bands of all time, one of the best bands of all time, without question, and hugely influential, Leonard Skinnerd. Which, by the way, we'll see what their plans are moving forward, but they are set to come to Fiddler's Green Amphitheater in Greenwood Village on Monday, August 7th, as well as ZZ Top, which is one remaining original band member, which would be guitarist Billy Gibbons. Once again, Jimmy in for Stefan News Talk 710 KNUS. Real quick, couple programming notes. I will be back live in the saddle this coming Saturday, the 11th of March, just as we gear up for the Republican Party Central Committee to meet and decide on their leadership. I'm actually moderating a forum with the candidates for state party chair this coming Thursday for the Foothills Republicans. That should be quite interesting. Very interesting indeed. Then next Saturday or next week, every day next week, while Deborah Flora is out of town for spring break with the family, um, I will be filling in 3 p.m. Monday through Friday of next week. So be sure to tune in then as I substitute for uh, Deborah Flora. I want to wrap up. So last night, 
Tucker Carlson rocked the political world when he shared a video that apparently had been never before seen, revealed it publicly, doubled down on it tonight with more earlier in his show, I noticed. But here's a snippet of Last Night with Tucker Carlson. It turns out there's quite a bit of video you haven't seen. And that video tells a very different story about what happened on January 6th. More than 40,000 hours of surveillance footage from in and around the Capitol have been withheld from the public. And once you see the video, you'll understand why. Taken as a whole, the video record does not support the claim that January 6th was an insurrection. In fact, it demolishes that claim. And that's exactly why the Democratic Party and its allies in the media prevented you from seeing it. These were not insurrectionists. They were sightseers. Footage from inside the Capitol overturns the story you've heard about January 6th. Protesters queue up in neat little lines. They give each other tours outside the Speaker's office. They take cheerful selfies and they smile. They're not destroying the Capitol. They obviously revere the Capitol. They're there because they believe the election was stolen from them. They believe in the system. Here's the man you've heard referred to as the QAnon shaman outside the Senate chamber. These are not rioters. These are people who wandered over from a political rally. Wandered over. There, there are two things that I have as thoughts in response to Tucker. And, and there are some things that raise questions. So number one, you have a few things that are shown to raise some questions about the Democrat narrative. Look, I, I've always said the insurrection narrative is ludicrous. This was not an insurrection. I've argued it was a siege of the Capitol. I did that the week of in a column condemning what happened. And I've argued that it was riotous. It was a riot. And it, it clearly was. Now, it does raise questions that counter and shed light on things that go against the Democrats' narrative of insurrection, this and that. Their hyperbolic narrative. No question about that. We already had plenty of questions that doubt their narrative. But at the same time, I don't think this changes much. Because the reality is, and I think we all need to be clear on it, what happened on January 6, 2021 was unacceptable. It was brazen. It was wrong. It was inappropriate. It was antithetical to the American ideal. What happened that day was reprehensible. Was it an insurrection? No. But I think the, the problem that I have with the, with the way that Tucker framed it is that he acts as though, oh, it was just sightseers going to the Capitol. There was nothing. It was a lot more than that, plain and simple. Not an insurrection. The Democrats' narrative doesn't hold up. But to diminish it to the point where it's just like, oh, it was absolutely nothing is just plain wrong based on the facts of history. If you remember, if you were there watching the news as things were unfolding, that's a, a, a few thoughts. I would also say that Relitigating January 6th does nothing good for the Republicans, for conservatives. 
because basically it calls up 2020 again and we live in the past as opposed to marching ahead with an agenda that is persuasive to the American people. You go back into these old debates. We need to move on from that. And I don't think there's benefit that comes from making a big deal out of January 6th again on the right. And by the way, it is very odd watching this uh, Jake Jacob Chansley, the so-called QAnon shaman, walking through the halls of of Congress as though he's being escorted. But one member of Capitol Police, Officer Kent Robishaw, has said that he was present when Chansley, who of course pleaded guilty to obstructing a congressional proceeding, entered the building next to other rioters who were clearly armed with stolen police riot shields. And, well, I'm out of time. But I think there's more to that piece. Some of it's odd, but I think there might be a viable explanation. Either way, I think we got to be careful here and treading in this direction, retreading old ground. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. God bless America. Have a great night. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 